half he asked them to use ChatGPT to solve it, and the other half to validate what ChatGPT found. Over 50% inaccurate. Remember, AI is all based on the data. If your data is garbage, your answer is equally bad. But how do you think we can still balance creativity and authenticity in this world of AI? Chris Fitzgerald, tune in to Tech Legacies. Welcome everybody to the Tech Legacies video podcast. My name is Fanny Dunnigan and I'm your host. And every episode we come to you featuring tech executives, CTOs, CIOs, sharing their perspectives, their advice, the challenges and lessons that they've gained over their technology careers so that we can support you all in your career growth as technology professionals. So welcome to the show, and I want to welcome everybody and introduce you to Chris Fitzgerald, the former CTO of NTT Data. Welcome, and thank you for joining us, Chris. Thank you, Fanny. And uh, I actually heard about you through our mutual connection, Karen Bruno, and um, she says you've had quite the career. And when I looked at your bio and everything, um, you're retired now, but you've given so much and you continue to give. So as you kind of navigated your career, what would you say was the best advice that you've had? Well, a couple of things. One was always be kind of open and transparent in what you did, because if you try and hide something, people will see through that. So that was a key part of it. I think be honest and, and always think forward. I mean, I have always been accused of having the ultimate positive attitude. And to me, that's a great thing to be accused of. And so being positive, even in times of trouble, understand you can get out of it. And that's just helped me get through all those years. Speaking of positivity, how did you juggle that with also the, the thing with technologists where you have to look at every possibility, every worst case scenario and prepare for it, and then still maintain that positivity? Well, there's a great phrase that the, I think it's the enemy of good is perfection. Mm -hmm. And so often the challenge in technology is not to go so wide and so far and do so much looking and get enamored with the shiny object that you miss what's important. So part of the focus is figure out what is important to look forward to, narrow down to that, and then figure out the steps to take to get there. And always understand that you're going to iterate along the way. Don't think of that big jump five years out. Think of that one month, two month iterate and be able to adjust as you go and keep on that path. Did you always know that you were going to go into technology when you first started? Yes and no. I mean, I mean, I started writing programming when I was in like uh, junior high school. I didn't know it, but our math class was taught in basic. So I got kind of enamored back then with technology, stuff like that. My first job out of college was IBM, and that kind of cemented it. So from that point on, I was kind of in the tech world, yeah. Ah, oh, hearing you talk about basic. I still remember learning like Fortran. Cobol. <laughs> and uh, Pascal, remember those? <laughs> Blast from the past. <laughs> the challenge at Nebraska was they didn't believe that Fortran and Cobol were a foreign language. They wanted to take French and German also. So I said, no, Fortran <laughs> and Cobol are foreign enough for me. Now, as you navigated your career, did you hit some low points? And what was one of those low points and, and what did it teach you? Yeah, I did. I mean, I think we learn sometimes more by those mistakes or issues than we do sometimes the good things. 
and I was working for a company and thought I was doing okay. And boss came in and said that we'd like you to leave the company. And it was kind of that surprise because I wasn't aware of it. But I stepped back and said, okay, I'm going to change my focus to my job is now finding that next career. And in a couple of weeks, I had a couple of offers, flew down interview and went to work at a company in, in Houston and became one of the best changes that ever happened to me because I met someone who became my mentor for 13 years yeah. and a great organization. So it was a surprise. It was a low point, but pretty quickly became a pivotal change that was just the right thing to do. And we're seeing more and more now some big tech firms that are laying off their staff. Right? We've heard of Microsoft, Google, um, Salesforce having laid off multiple people. For those people that are especially in kind of like the middle level of their career and having lost their jobs, any advice for them at this point? I go back to make finding that next thing your 100% focus. Even when you're in a job? Well, you should always have way. your CV current. I wouldn't say always be looking because to me that's maybe unsatisfied, mm -hmm. but always be current and never be comfortable in your current career. Now, two things. One is that means you're always going to try and do better, which will help you, but you then won't be as surprised if something changes even outside of your control like a layoff, and therefore you're not devastated by it. Mm -hmm. The last thing I'd say is it's, it's a great time for those people because they're wanted by a lot of small and medium companies that are still hiring a lot. So that tech town has a great place to go to. Mm. Actually, that's a good point. Um, on another show, we were discussing this this debate of when you first start off or even kind of throughout your career, do you pursue the big brands and the well-known names or do you kind of go for those medium-sized companies that can be just as exciting and, um, but they're just not, the brands are not as known? I'll share what I share with the students when I, I lecture at UTD. I say, I would pick as that first company a learning company one that's gonna help you learn more about yourself and teach you skills, because you may not know what you like or are good at yet. And then from there, you can decide, oh, this is what I'm good at, stay there or figure out, I can now go large or small company. If you go straight to small, the challenge is, you might get lucky and find that right job, mm -hmm. but you may have to have less learning for a while. So find that learning organization, which can be medium or large. Mm -hmm. I love that. So think back to your first, full-time technology job. And then um, fast forward then to the technology executive that you are today. What do you think was kind of like the three leadership qualities that, that got you to where you are today? Well, my first job was IBM. Mm -hmm. Okay, a um, couple things. They, they taught you really a lot about how to be a professional. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just the technical skills that built your basis but the business acumen, the business skills, how to interact with people. And one of my favorite things they advised us of, we were going through what they called an objection handling clinic, where they would throw a question at you to see if you could respond correctly. And the t I'd been there two weeks, so I'm like a newbie. And the professor says, okay, why do all you IBMers wear white shirts? Now I'm sitting there in a tan suit, striped shirt, being the smart college kid that said, well, we work on a lot of machines. Machines have grease. You can get the grease out of your white shirt easier. He doesn't crack a smile. Go to the next guy, which means you failed, ask the same question. And the guy said, we wear clothes that our customers do not notice. 
and that you can think about that. It's, it's kept me through my entire career is how should you appear? You, want, you don't want them saying, oh, what's that person wearing? But, oh, here comes Chris. Mm. And so whether you're talking to banks for the suit and tie, casual things, it's wear clothes that don't detract from the conversation. Mm. And it kind of ties back to, you know, making it about the client, not about it's ourselves. It's not, not about you. Right. What would be two other leadership traits that you've kind of developed? That's where I get the transparency mm. about everything about it. You know, just be really transparent, share the background to it. I even use that phrase and talk about AI. You know, understand where the decisions came from, share that logic will go on to you. Mm -hmm. And I think also around them is they always thought about the future in mind. You know, think, you know, IBM did a great job of years beyond where today was and saying, where do I need to be X years out? And then what must I do to get there? And that goes back into as, as an executive, you've got to be thinking multi-years out and then create the plans to get there. Speaking of transparency, so much of what we do as technologists has to be right or wrong, you know, a, a one or a zero, right? And um, what are your thoughts about when we make mistakes in our job and tying that back to transparency? I, th I think when you make a mistake, you respect it if you own up to it. But you own up to it with the aspect of I'm going to resolve it and I'm going to learn from it. So it's not just owning up to it, yeah. it's owning up to it with the feature forward, okay? Um, people will forgive mistakes because you learn from those. Now, if you keep on making them over and over again, different issue, right. but I think you have to own up to it and do it in the right way. Is there a project that you've been really proud of throughout your career? I think the, the thing I was most proud of was probably my going back for my master's at Emory for my EMBA. Because mm -hmm. in college, I was a 2-7. I, didn't focus enough on actually the educational part of going to college. I enjoyed it more than I should have probably. Mm -hmm. So when I went back 10 years later for my master's, I made it a point to say, I'm gonna prove it for me and do it for me. And I was a 398, I was second in my class, and, mm -hmm. and it was all about how I could do better with myself. And along with that, shared with the class, a, a, some of the best friends I still have today are from that class back in 89, 90. Mm -hmm. So that was probably the most, you know, looking back, proud of my time going through that. So I'm going to put you on the spot, Chris, because we were talking about this in the in the hallway just now. Uh, you were bartending um, during your college years. Any parallels that you see between bartending and your technology careers? Well, I think of bartenders is, is two things. Remember, it's about the customer, the client. I say that's part of it understand what they need and want so you can serve that need in the right way. Be aware of their situation. Drinking too much is time to stop serving them alcohol. But it's a very much a people thing. And also treat them the way you'd like to treat you. And so to me, that's analogy to any kind of career you're in is, is always think about that. Treat them with the respect, regardless of what their position, their level, whatever they are, and they'll treat you the same way back. Perfect. Perfect answer for an on-the-spot question. <laughs> um, did you encounter any big challenges that were tough to resolve during your career? Yeah, I think a lot of them had to do sometimes with major projects where you would encompass, encounter something that was difficult. And it might be kind of like it was like a roadblock that had to be overcome before you can move forward. And a lot of times it was finding the right partners 
in the business or in technology to help you understand where that was coming from. And that old phrase of seek first to understand, mm -hmm. then to be understood, kind of step back, figure it out, navigate it through, and then go over it. And I had those in large projects many times. And they, were, they weren't personally showstopper, but they were business kind of like, wait a minute, this is stalled for a minute. Mm -hmm. And your ability to kind of figure out and get around those were critical to success of your job, your work, and your company. Partners with the stakeholders internally or partners with like vendors and suppliers? And the answer is both. Probably the internal stakeholders first. But I had one situation, we had a major outage at one of the companies I worked for for seven days. And having the outside vendor as that partner through that entire piece was instrumental to us solving the problem at all. Mm -hmm. And then after solving it, going back and saying, what should we have done differently? You're our partner in this. But the stakeholders were, be patient, we're going to get this fixed. And how do you manage that kind of risk over numerous days? I was, I joke and say, I was the cheerleader. My team was solving it. I was the person encouraging them, asking the questions, keeping them going, okay, bringing the pizza, stuff like that. But always kind of focused on, okay, guys, we have to get this done. And they were even surprised, my team said later, why weren't you mad? I said, would that have helped? I said, I can get upset later. We can look at it later and say, why did we get ourselves in this place? But that's not helpful while you're underwater. So let's get it resolved and then go back and say, what could we have done differently so this won't happen again? I want to pause real quick here and give a special shout out to one of our sponsors, CG Infinity. I've worked with them for several years now, and I can truly say that they have one of the best workplace cultures that I've ever experienced. And they specialize in a variety of industries, especially energy, utilities, and financial services. And they serve them through their Salesforce, cloud, as well as customer experience services. So thank you, CG Infinity. And I hope you'll support them as they have supported us here at the podcast. Now, you're retired now, but still very, very busy. Yes. <laughs> uh, what are you doing in your retirement right now? Uh, so a couple things. Um, I'm chairman of the advisory council at the engineering school at UTD. I guess lecture about seven to ten times a semester for some professors at UTD on a variety of tech topics. I'm on the board of several startup companies, several of them in the AI and healthcare space, mm -hmm. advising a, a company that a friend of mine is the CEO for. I build houses two days a week with Habitat for Humanity and travel with my wife. Why bother? Why, why bother do with why? all that? <laughs> why, oh. why invest your time when you've already worked so hard throughout your career and why continue to work? Maybe it's just part of my upbringing, but I was always brought up that the impact you have on people is more important than the impact you have on yourself. So what's that legacy you leave behind? I had some great advisors and mentors and people that I grew up with that made a difference to me. And if I can have that impact to students or companies, then that's really cool. You know, the habitat, I call it my therapy. Because in IT, you don't see what you do a lot of times. Building a house, you get to see it every day and give back. So to me, it's, it is very much my impact portfolio, to quote Trudy's comment to that one point in time. Mm -hmm. But giving back to me is really important. Mm. Now, when you teach these college students, 
you're obviously sharing from your perspective and your advice and your lessons. Have you learned something from them? Yeah, I do. So, so I, 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 I tell in class, they learn the concepts. Mm. I try and say, I'm sharing with you how companies have applied those in, in reality. And what I learn from them sometimes is what's still relevant or not, or what's important to them in that conversation. So part of doing it also is constantly every semester evolving, what are the topics, but also how do I tone those to make them relevant for the students? So they keep me current, they keep me honest, they will challenge some of the tech trends sometimes, the relevancy of it, and to me that adds to the conversation I have. So I learn from them every day and I get energized from them every time I teach. What's a surprising thing you learned from them? I'd say in some ways how, at least at UTD, how focused they are on, on getting a degree, getting a job, doing something for impact, and not what we might watch in the press, which is being something else. These, they really are focused on driving impact in the right way. Mm -hmm. And I call UTD that pragmatic university. It's a great place, and they should be proud of what they bring the students to do. It's a great place. 37% of the students are first-generation college students. Wow. Yeah. Now, obviously, AI is becoming more and more prevalent. And as do you see it kind of weaving into the college studies and work that's being done there now? And, and how do you kind of maintain the ethics of that? I wouldn't use the word weave. It's already woven. Mm. It's already in it. And I'll share an example. So ChatGBT, one of the professors I lectured for had challenged his class. He gave the class a problem to solve. Half he asked them to use ChatGBT to solve it, and the other half to validate what ChatGBT found. Over 50% inaccurate. Now, wow. very quick, it speaks in a very nice way, and it's a wonderful solution in the right way. But what he's teaching people to learn is embrace AI, and I use the phrase as augmented intelligence. Let it help you with your intelligence. Don't rely upon it for the answer. Let it help you do the research, get things faster, learn from it, and then put your answer on top of it. So let it augment your intelligence, not replace it. Mm. And back to the ethics of it, I mean, to me, as it goes back to that transparency, mm. be in front. If AI gives you an answer, understand how it got the answer. Mm. Okay, what did it use for the formulas? How did it figure that out? Because that gives you comfort that what it arrived at was correct. If it didn't use data that made sense, then it could be a really great answer and be wrong because the data it learned from was not the right data. And remember, AI is all based on the data. If your data is garbage, your answer is equally bad. That's any ERP project as well, right? <laughs> that phrase of data and garbage is not new to AI. <laughs> yeah, garbage and garbage. It's out. been around for a while, yes. Uh, but how do you think we can still balance creativity and authenticity in this world of AI? Well, again, I go back to it's, it's find the places for it to help you, to help speed the research. So I think of developers who are being creative on solving a problem for you, but they may need to do some research into here are patterns, things like that. Mm -hmm. Let it help you with the research, then you apply your creativity or your business acumen to take that research into solution. So let it help you on stuff that may not have been as interesting to you before and help you be more effective in your role. Speed that answer to you, okay? Not replace, but augment. Mm. 
And as you, so you're teaching now? Yes. You're um, guest lecturing. You also build for Habitat for Humanity. Tell us some of those stories around that um, or something that's impacted you personally as a result of doing that. Yeah, so, so the great thing about Habitat is it's, it's the houses Habitat builds are not a gift to the homeowner. The homeowner takes out a loan for it. They have to pay for the houses. But their deposit on the house is, I think, two or 300 hours of sweat equity. So when you're building a house, you will often have the owner right there next to you building a house. So one time we're building the house and I had one of the volunteers who was there. He's just whacking away with a hammer, being kind of casual and not being very accurate. I stopped and said, stop. I said, build this house like it was your house. And the lady next to us said, this is my house. And we hadn't met her yet. And it changes the whole tone of how you build a house to know that right there with you is the homeowner, the family, the kids, whatever. You go back in those neighborhoods five years later and the houses are still clean and neat because they helped to build that home. And to me, that's, that's the greatest gift you can do is helping those folks elevate themselves out of, in effect, not great housing, into housing that's theirs and they own it. Any suggestions for our audience in ways that they can give back even during their career? Yeah, I think it's, to me, is find out where your passion is. You know, whether it's kids, it's the elderly, it's, you know, food banks, it's habitat. I call it my therapy. Find that thing that you have a passion for. Find out where you can volunteer in that and start that early. Because what you'll find is it'll kind of sometimes be that place you go away from work and can kind of detox from part of it. It's a relaxing piece. It's a safe space. You also may find over time as you grow your career, it becomes something that you go from volunteering to endorsing. As an executive, we talk about, you know, you've gone from you were on a team that volunteered to now you're talking about for your organization, where do you want to impact? I was in a working site one time at Habitat where the president of Hilti Tools was there with his whole team building and painting. He had decided that's where they wanted to give back as an organization to have an impact. So you go from participating to having the impact. Start that now. Find the place you enjoy. Mm. You mentioned teams in there. I know that's a passion of yours, building teams throughout your career. Um, if you can give us kind of like from the two perspectives, the hardest things that you've had to do in building teams and the most rewarding things that you've done. I think the hardest thing I probably do with building teams sometimes is to understand what they're there for, what's driving them, kind of decode will make them part of that team. So you can bring that into a solution that provides benefit to all. Because often people are assigned to a team and maybe they really don't want to be there. Mm -hmm. Teams people volunteer for is easy, the ones they don't. How do you get all those folks to the right place? That's hard. You gotta find that pattern for it without losing the focus of where you want to go, mm -hmm. okay? I think the fun part of it is on a team is when you deliver something, you know, either on time, on budget, or really has a value, and you see that result, that customer who loves it, and you just watch the team beam. And that's when it's all about the team. You know, the fact they delivered something that they didn't think they could do in the time frame they were gonna do it, and they did it. When you hired these teams, were there certain questions that you always asked in an interview? Because for some of our audience here, as they navigate their careers and interviews and, um, what kind of answers to questions can they prepare? Yeah, I mean, I always feel that 
when I had the interviews, I was not asking the technical questions. Mm -hmm. I was asking what I would call the aptitude questions. Okay, how do you operate in a team? Share how you've done something in a team before. What gets you excited about something? Um, what are you looking for to contribute? And so when people answering those questions, think about examples of how you've been part of something, how you've delivered and been part of a team, whether you led the team or were a member of that, and how the outcome and the impact was part of it. And so I think today the biggest challenge for a lot of students are is they're not used to that teaming aspect when they go into work for a company. The last thing is, as a team, you can't sit in the back and not say anything. In class, I can be in the back row and not say anything. And I'll still probably graduate with a good grade if I did the test. If you're on a team, you're not visible yes. if you're not contributing. So it's not to dominate. But I work with folks who say, guys, you all have to be active in this team, sharing something so that you're recognized as being part of it or as the wallflower, you won't be seen. Well, a lot of technologists are because we focus on the knowledge and the experience, and we may not have focused on the communications and relationship building. What if we're introverts or shy? How do we, what's worked for you to kind of get out there? And what's worked for your teams to get out there? Well, not being an introvert or shy, I can't speak from that personal experience. <laughs> I'm accused of being everything else but that. But when I talk to folks who are, and I advise them, it's ask questions. Okay, get involved in a conversation. Okay, if something's going on, clarify, volunteer for something, even if it's uncomfortable, because in fact, by volunteering, you engage in something. So as an introvert, pick the opportunity that you're most comfortable being part of or you're least comfortable mm. being part of. Because this you contribute to, this you might learn more from. But you gotta figure out where that is. Find a partner on that team that will support you in that conversation, okay? It's easier to be there with someone in that conversation than by yourself, but you have to find a way to do it. Mm -hmm. And just because you're an introvert doesn't mean you can't be engaged in the conversation. It just may mean you don't drive the conversation the same way. You mentioned earlier before this recording about this, um, and I think it ties back to this, what motivates us to get out of our comfort zones and to be uncomfortable. And um, you mentioned this concept of the pull. Can you talk a bit more about that? So in a lot of the key projects I've, I've worked on with, with the clients, the challenge is we'll create, for example, this vision, this strategy. And your challenge is, okay, how do I get the rest of the business, or in some cases, multiple countries to buy into it? And the model that I think works the best is find the value for that entity and pull them into your solution versus saying, hey, I'm with corporate, I'm here to help, let me push that solution out. Mm -hmm. Push is rarely as successful, at least in corporate, as pull it. Mm -hmm. So let it be part of, they can chart in when is the right time for them, but you gotta find the value for them so they'll want your solution mm -hmm. and the timing is there. And to me, where we've been most successful in projects I've delivered is where we pulled our partners together and came to that, hey, we're going to go to this space together versus here's our decision. Don't get in our way. Yeah. And that applies to team building too. It does. Chris, what, now that you're kind of on the, the other side of retirement, right? <laughs> you're, you're giving back, you're paying it forward. Um, any regrets? Anything that you'd do differently? 
Well, I, I have a phrase about doing it differently. If I did something major differently in my past, I wouldn't end up where I am today. Mm. Aren't there movies that seems like that? Did we just see a movie this weekend by Nana Jones Indiana about changing Jones. your past? <laughs> so I wouldn't really change anything. You know, are there little regrets here and there throughout our lives? Of course. Little things you wish you had done or small things here or there. But in general, I think overall, no. Because I like where I am today. Mm. I enjoy what I'm doing with life. Um, that doesn't mean I'm ever comfortable, even after retirement. The phrase I use is never get comfortable. Why? Okay. Um, you get hit by a truck. Mm. But it's really in life, though, it's a matter of if you don't get comfortable, then you're not satisfied with where you are. You'll always work to do a little better. And you'll also be much more aware of what's around you. Maybe see someone who's not really on board and help get them on board. If you get comfortable, you get complacent, you start thinking, I've got it, and you forget the others. Well, Chris, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your advice. Uh, any final words for our audience as they navigate their technology careers? I'd say the one phrase I use, and I use it when I teach, is never stop learning. Okay, Whether it's technology, people skills, whatever it is, Never stop learning. Always look for what can I learn more about and understand better because that helps you with your life and your career forever. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Thank you, Penny. And for all of you out there, we'll leave you with that. Never stop learning. Um, we hope you'll continue to tune in to these episodes. Give us your feedback. Like and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Tech Legacies, as well as subscribe to all our other podcasting and social media channels at Tech Legacies. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you next time. At Tech Legacies, we're all about helping technology professionals grow and succeed in their careers by sharing the advice of top technology executives. If you're looking to take your career to the next level and become a technology executive yourself, we have an exciting program to tell you about. It's called the Tech CXO Excellence Program by Tech CXO Launchpad, and they are our partners. They're offering an immersive, multimodal program developed and taught by current and former CIOs and CTOs who are passionate about building the next generation of C-suite technology executives. And you'll experience a full immersion into the C-suite world and also get to collaborate, network, and experience capstone-style projects with other professionals. And this is all while benefiting from face-to-face -face interactions in person with industry guest speakers. It is exclusively for a new level of C-suite executives and C-level direct reports and second directs who are earmarked for succession planning and career growth. To join their waitlist, register your interests at www.techcxolaunchpad.com. That's techcxolaunchpad.com. This program has everything you need to take your career to the next level.